The trouble with most therapy is that it helps you feel better, Albert Ellis told the New York Times in an interview in 2004. But you don't get better. You have to back it up with action, action, action. This legend died last month. What did he leave us? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Arthur Freeman. Dr. Freeman worked with Dr. Ellis in New York for more than 30 years and knew him as a student, then a colleague, and a close friend and associate. Dr. Freeman is a visiting professor at Governor State University in Chicago and chair emeritus and professor of psychology at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. In addition, he is director of the psychology department of Sheridan Shores Rehabilitation Hospital and the president of the Freeman Institute for Cognitive Therapy and director of training and supervision for the Center for Brief Therapy in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome. Thank you so much. Dr. Freeman, what have we learned from Dr. Albert Ellis? Well, Leslie, I think one of the problems is we don't have enough time to talk about all we've learned from Albert Ellis. Mm -hmm. Al was an icon. Al was the grandfather or godfather of one of the most studied and popular treatment models, cognitive behavior therapy. So what we've learned from Al has been the importance of action, 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 as you said, the importance of an active and directive kind of therapy that works on getting better, not just feeling better. So how do you do that? (laughs) Well, I think there are lots of approaches. Uh, Broadly, cognitive behavior therapy is an umbrella term. The type of therapy that Al Ellis developed, initially he called it rational therapy to differentiate it from the psychoanalytic work. And then the complaint was, well, you know, you deal with emotions, not just rational thinking. We're not looking for rational depressives or rational anxiety patients. So he changed the name of his model to rational emotive therapy, and he put the E in the middle. And then later on, people said, but uh, Al, you do a lot about behavioral change. So the current terminology is rationally motive behavior therapy. Mm-hmm. And you had the pleasure of working with him for so long. What kind of insights can you give us into, into him as a person? Well, I did not work at his institute. Uh, I worked with him at a distance. I was a student of his, and he and I collaborated on many, many projects over the years. Uh, we've been friends, uh, colleagues. I think the major insights have to do with the importance of doing, not just talking about doing. The importance of action, not just talking about action. Of doing things to change what you experience. And, And one of the things that he did, which I think was marvelous, He used himself as a subject in many, many experiments. And he tells the story when he was about 16, 17 years old. He wanted to meet girls. He was painfully shy. And he went to, he lived in New York in the Bronx, and he went to the Bronx Botanical Gardens, and he was determined to talk to women. And he wasn't sure what to say, And he was very anxious about this, and he said to himself, well, I'm going to talk to women, 
and if talking to women, I die, I die. <laughs> so he said he approached 130 women sitting on benches in the botanical gardens, and he said 30 immediately got up and walked away. But 100, a good number for research, stayed and talked. Yeah. And he discovered, A, he didn't die, <laughs> and he actually made a date with one of the women. Unfortunately, she never showed up. But he learned a great deal about what it takes to break through and get something done, to change the way you think and the way you feel. He also speaks of his reluctance to be in front of people and give a lecture. And he forced himself to do it despite his anxiety. And in very short order, he was speaking everywhere. And if you had seen him throughout his life, from about that point on, he was irrepressible. You could not, if he was in front of an audience, he would get up and speak. Hmm. So he learned a great deal, which he then helped his patients, that he focused on the way people believe, the way they think, the way they process experience. So, so action, huh? <laughs> yeah. That he had a very simple, he was very, very clever. He was incredibly clever to make things simple and usable. For example, his basic model was coded as ABC. Everyone can remember ABC. At A, there's some event, some activating event. So A stands for activating event, and that could be internal or external. It could be a life event or, or a thought or a feeling. At C, there's a consequence. And in Ellis's model, the consequence was a result of the B, your beliefs. So he focused very much on helping people understand their beliefs, many of them irrational, not all of them, of course, so that the major irrational beliefs had to do with what he saw as imperatives. You must do this. You should do this. So let's suppose you've invited me on your show I'm going to be on XM radio, and I say to myself, I must do a perfect job. I must be absolutely without flaw. I must, I should be perfect. Now, if I believe that, what are the chances of my agreeing to do this? <laughs> well, zero to none, because I'd be so frightened that I might make a mistake that I won't do it. I won't risk making an error. So it was very interesting, the very simple idea that we process information and we need to look at the imperatives. And there are many things interesting, of course, about Albert Ellis. But if you think about his work in the context of what had happened before, so the psychodynamic model and the whole Freudian kind of movement, this is radically different. When Al developed his model in the 50s, everybody was upset. The Freudians, of course, were just off the wall. The Rogerians, the followers of Carl Rogers, who advocated at that time a very non-directive approach, could not believe that he was so directive. Everybody was upset. They just could not believe he would do this, but he persevered. That despite criticism, some of it really, really personally offensive, some of it really angry and aggressive, uh, he persevered. He 
built a, an institute that is world famous. He collected people around him to carry the message. He gave courses around the world. He set up centers around the world. He, his work has been translated into many languages. I mean, he did a heck of a lot of work. Mm-hmm. He really was quite incredible at great personal cost. Oh, how so? Well, it's not much fun to walk into a meeting and have people make nasty comments about you, professionals, colleagues, that as a student, I heard him lecture, and I went, uh, I was very impressed, and I went back to my psychoanalytic supervisor, and I said, I heard this fellow, Albert Ellis. I mean, I really am impressed with his work. And my psychoanalytic supervisor said to me, in that very psychoanalytic way, the furrowed brow look, and he said to me, yes, Ellis is very logical, he's not psychological. And being a good supervisee, I said, "Uh uh-huh. I have no idea what my supervisor meant by that, but he wasn't psychoanalytic. And that was offensive, that he talked about just changing what you do. But that certainly, you know, that majority opinion clearly changed. And there was one survey in the 80s where clinical psychologists ranked him way ahead of Freud. Yes, that Carl Rogers was number one. Albert Ellis was number two. Freud was three. So, uh, I mean, that, that's very impressive that his colleagues, these were members of uh, Division 12 clinical psychology and Division 17 counseling psychology, of the American Psychological Association. And practicing clinicians saw him as one of the most important and influential therapists in, in the history of psychological therapy. Now, many of our listeners are primary care physicians. Is there any way that, you know, without the training that you've had, certainly, that we can incorporate some of the Ellis philosophy into our dealings with patients in a more medical setting? I think that the broad cognitive behavioral model works incredibly well in the primary care setting because it has many of the very same attributes as primary care interventions. They're action-oriented, they're symptom-oriented, they're uh, solution-focused, yeah, you've got this problem, how do we resolve it? That it's not merely how do you feel, but what are we going to do to change it? That I think the broad REBT slash CBT model is a superb companion to primary care practice. How do we do it, though? <laughs> uh, how do we do it? Well, that's tough. It's, it's like saying... Uh, if I'm not feeling well, uh, what do I need to do to practice medicine? <laughs> right. well, I need some training. I may even have to go to medical school for a year. <laughs> that uh, REBT sounds simple, but it really takes experience, practice, supervision. That there are many books on uh, chapters uh, and, and books on CBT in uh, medical practice. One healthcare group that we have focused on are nurses. Uh, we focused on uh, working in uh, with physicians as working as partners uh, 
in terms of pain management, in terms of medical, in terms of rehabilitation issues, uh, with the broadest range, end-of-life issues, medication compliance. You know, what we see, uh, the patient won't take their medication. Uh, why not? Because they have certain beliefs. The belief may be that if I have to take medication, I'm losing control over my body. I want my body to heal itself. And, of course, there are many practitioners in medicine who might believe the same thing. Thank you to Dr. Arthur Freeman. We have been discussing the legendary life and work of Dr. Albert Ellis. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.